of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the POSE platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I'm delighted to welcome Erna Walraven, who is the Emeritus Senior Curator, Taronga Zoo, and author of various publications, including the recent Wild Leadership, What Wild Animals Teaches About Leadership, and Wild Fathers, What Wild Animal Dads Teaches About Fatherhood. And I know there's other books in the pipeline, so very much looking forward. Welcome, Erna. Hi there, Sabrina. Hello. So we always like to kick off the podcast with like a short story, like on your first animal connection or something else alongside animals. My very first memory of an animal that I adored was a German shepherd. His name was Peter. I grew up in the Netherlands and sunshine didn't come about very often. So mothers put babies on the footpath in a little bit of sunshine whenever there is a bit of sunshine. And Peter would be my my, uh, loyal lieutenant sitting next to the pram. And um, yeah, he was so much part of my early life. I adored that dog. He died when I was 12 and he was, I think, 13 by then, uh, which is, you know, not a bad innings for a large dog, but I missed him terribly, missed him terribly. But yeah, I adored him. And I still love German Shepherds whenever I see one. Yeah, it's wonderful. And you know, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, proms and, you know, putting, you know, babies out and, and uh, him being like your, your sentinel, if you like. And uh, because I know that in some countries, you know, people think that's so weird, you know, this kind of custom of, of putting babies out, which is quite, quite uh, normal, actually, in, in northern countries where, where like you and I both came, come from the Netherlands. So, but um, yeah, and of course, you know, having animals there, sentinels, uh, and our connection with them, that's just lovely. And, you know, perhaps you can talk a little bit about, because you are now based in Australia, but as you say, you're from the Netherlands, and then, you know, knowing your biography a little bit, you then went to Spain, and, you know, you worked in wine and tapas, and then you worked as a translator, and a debt collector, and a dog washer. So perhaps you could talk to us a little bit how, you know, you came to these different countries and the different jobs. Yeah, I was uh, 18 when I moved from Holland to Spain by myself. And that was really because I was ready for adventure. And it seemed like a good excuse. I told my parents I was going to study Spanish. So I had to get jobs and I didn't actually work in food, tapas and wine, but I I took advantage of them in a big way, I suppose. Um, But I worked at everything when I first arrived in Spain and eventually um, became a translator. So that was uh, the bonus that I had promised the parents, I suppose, by going to live in Spain. But I loved Spain. I lived there for seven years. Um, I lived there during the Franco regime, the dictator. It was extremely interesting. I loved their vibrancy, their their love of food and wine. And they're so, so keen to celebrate everything there is to celebrate in life. And, um, and if they're not happy, they actually don't come out. So you don't see that side of Spain as much. So, and then I met my now husband in Spain and um, I moved to Australia after we traveled back and forth for a few years. So I ended up in Australia at about the age of 28, I suppose. Yes. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, your work as a translator? What sorts of work did you do? And and did it also connect to some of the animal work? 
Yeah, I didn't really connect with the animal work that much, but I was the weirdo in town who looked after all the stray dogs and stray cats. And, you know, there was this lovely stray dog that used to sleep in front of the supermarket in my local town. There was only one supermarket and he'd lay there hoping for any cutoffs um, from, from the, I don't know, the ham bones maybe. Um, but yeah, I, I would, I had a friend, Enrique, who was a veterinarian, un veterinario in, in the Spanish. And he would um, give me at cost price vaccinations for the stray dogs and I'd, I'd bathe them if they had mange and I took their ticks out and above everything else I tried to find them permanent homes so there were many foreigners Germans Belgians French Dutch who went home with a stray dog that um, I talked them into but they 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 learned to love before they went home so um, that that was obviously I was a frustrated zookeeper already, but my translating, I worked for a company that welcomed tourists. So we um, used to have all these lovely, you know, luxury bungalows overlooking the Mediterranean. And I would pick people up from the airport and do all whatever it took to translate for them, to get the plumber in, whatever it was. Um, so but then later in Australia, I became a translator and interpreter for the Commonwealth Bank, the big um, bank that was owned by the government at the time. And I used to do Dutch, German, French, Spanish and English. Um, although Australian, I, I hardly thought that was English when I first heard it. Wonderful, wonderful. So, yeah, that sounds really great that you were working, you know, to get these dogs uh, healthy, happy, and of course, adopted. So that's wonderful. And you talked about already, you know, being some sort of a zookeeper. So perhaps you can talk to us how you landed your first zoo job then. Yeah, when I came to Australia at the age of 28, um, you have to sit for exams in order to be able to practice as a translator in, in Australia. It's called the National Accreditation for Translators and Interpreters. And my Australian colloquialism just wasn't up to scratch. It was at virtually non-existent. I, I didn't understand half of what they said. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just work for a year before I sit for the exams because you had to pay for each of the languages separately at one of the universities to get that accreditation. And I thought, oh, it'll be fun to work with animals. I've always loved animals. So I got a variety of jobs, one in a dog grooming salon for one day a week and two days a week at a hobby farm where I milked the cows and milked the goats. And uh, the woman was also breeding Irish wolfhounds and we had to train them. Um, and she had geese that we had to look after. Anyway, it was just absolutely wonderful. And I realized I really loved animal husbandry. So I still passed my exams, became a, a qualified translator and interpreter in Australia, worked for the Commonwealth Bank and um, decided you know, I think I had a midlife crisis at the age of 29 or 30 and decided I'd do some courses in um, as a veterinary assistant and then I did zookeeping and then eventually at the age of 31, the zoo gave me a very junior uh, temporary position in Taronga Zoo and um, I've never looked back really, that was it for me. Wonderful. And yeah, thanks for sharing also the backgrounds of, you know, how, of course, you know, training other animals or working with other animals and caring for them in various places can really, of course, help in our, you know, aim in our quest to get into a zoo job because a lot of people listening to this podcast are ha having questions about how do I land, um, you know, a, a job in such a competitive field. So, and of course, working ha having experience with lots of animals can be extremely helpful. So perhaps you can talk to us a little bit about the types of works or jobs that you had uh, in the zoo. 
Okay, well, quite a variety. I started off because I had done some veterinary assistant work, so vet nurse. I did it through the Netherlands, so it was somewhere a little bit higher than vet nurse, uh, but, but obviously not a veterinary degree. So I got a job in the veterinary hospital and quarantine centre of Taronga Zoo because of that qualification, really. And as you say, because I'd done other animal stuff. I mean, any kind of animal work you can get, whether, you know, it's voluntary it, it, at an animal shelter or whatever it is, some expertise, some experience with, with um, animal husbandry is going to put anyone in good stead, perhaps more so than a number of degrees. So um, then I got jobs uh, for a while. They got me for a couple of years. They got me to fill in whenever someone was off six for a period of time or whatever, I got to fill in. So I had to learn all the routines, all the husbandry routines and all the different divisions. And that was really exciting, sort of arriving in the morning and getting a sec a set of keys and being told, well, you're doing big cats today. You go, holy moly. Um, you know, you try and quickly brush up on what notes you got from the keepers when you spoke to them, or um, you might be doing the giraffes and the oryx today, or for the next week, you're going to be on marine mammals. You'll be feeding seals and looking after the penguins. And it was just absolutely thrilling. I really enjoyed that. I did that for a number of years. And then they got me to fill in wherever managers on different uh, animal sections were away for a while or they were recruiting for a position. They got me to fill in those positions. And that was really exciting too, because it really is trying to adapt to a whole new culture. You know, whatever section you're on, there's a culture and you want to make sure that those people get from their leader what, what their expectations are and, and the animals are looked after. And so that was always a big challenge. And then after 12 years, there was a vacancy for the senior curator position and I that was advertised internationally so I was really lucky to get that in the end and I did that for 20 years uh, before I sort of semi-retired. <laughs> yeah. Yes because when we are working with and for animals and you know the planet then we never really retire right? And so, oh, absolutely not. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. I'm, I'm yeah. too interested still. And whilst there is something I can contribute, I feel like I should. Yes, absolutely. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, your involvement with like uh, banning birds and, you know, post release programs and perhaps the wildlife rehab book? Yeah, so when I was in the veterinary hospital, um, people would bring us sick, injured, orphaned wildlife, some one and a half thousand individual animals every year. And I found that absolutely fascinating that we would release those animals again after we'd patched them up, but we had no idea whether they survived or not. So I got a banding license and I had to find uh, a kind mentor who would take me under their wing and teach me how to ban birds um, and, you know, how to maintain the records. So I did that and I put ear tags into the possums before they were released. And I started a bit of an education program for the people who brought the animals in by involving them again when the animals were at point of release, because if they brought the animal in, say it was a, a ringtail possum and it was brought in because it was attacked by a cat. If I involved them in releasing the animal back where they found it and gave them a nest box and had, we had a little chat about keeping your possum in at night, then, then that kind of 
culture hopefully would spread through their entire suburb because suddenly these people were out spotlighting to see if they could see their possum or their, you know, whatever it was that they'd released. So um, I really enjoyed doing that. And that's when I wrote my first book about, that was in 1990, what do you do when you find, I don't know, kangaroo that's been hit by a cow? What do you do if you find a bird that's fallen out of the nest, et cetera, et cetera? That sort of thing didn't exist in Australia at all. And I, I felt a little audacious being a, a new migrant, um, writing a book like that about Australian wildlife. But I guess um, on paper, people can't tell that you're a foreigner, <laughs> you're a newcomer. So, uh, and that one, I'm, I'm very proud to say that one is still in publication 30 years later, that book. Wonderful. Yeah, that is so important. And sometimes, yeah, coming from the outside or of course with the experience that, that you had and have, um, you also were very well positioned to write such a book. So uh, that's just wonderful and that it's still useful today. And so you transitioned into the curator position and, and you know, can you talk to us a little bit about, for example, the animal welfare uh, policy and caring for for the animals? Yeah, um, so after a few years, I realized there wasn't um, in our region an animal welfare uh, position that had been articulated for our members. So at the time, we were the uh, ARASPA, the Australian Zoological Regional, can't remember the exact acronym. Now it is ZAR, Zoo and Aquarium Association. Um, so I brought that to the meeting and that was approved. But before I did that, I wrote uh, an animal welfare position for Taronga Zoo and then followed it up with policies and education for our staff to give everyone an understanding what it is. It's, it's a term that's bandied about. And sometimes I think that people don't quite understand what it is. People will say, oh, but that's animal welfare. Um, yeah, everything we do is animal welfare. It doesn't mean it's good or bad. Um, animal welfare should be good, of course, but, but um, you, you, you need to know exactly what it is that you want to achieve with animal welfare. And, and I felt that was trying to create lives for the animals that equated to, to the kind of interest of a life lived in the wild. So that may sometimes include negative experiences to appreciate the good experiences. And, and that was quite controversial when I started with that, because if you're a gorilla keeper, at the first drop of rain, you want to open all the slides and let them come inside under the heaters. But, but experiencing some safe danger, I suppose, or some safe detriments or some safe negatives is what makes you appreciate the good things in life. Like if I'm on a beach walk and suddenly, you know, there's, there's huge storm, I could absolutely drenched. I get cold, I run home, and isn't it fabulous to have that hot shower and put on your pyjamas and sit next to the heater with a glass of red? Um, that, that shower and that, you know, the pyjamas and the, and the red wouldn't be nearly as good if I hadn't experienced the shower first, the, the cold rain. So I wanted us to find ways of having animals experience positives and negatives that they would experience in real life, but in such a way also that we would allow animals to make decisions. I wanted us as keepers to be seen as the servants, not that animals had to rely on us. I, I don't like it when the, the chimpanzees or the gorillas or the orangutans hang out to see us, their, their life should be lived in their communities and we should be uh, the extra that supplies whatever it is that they need. But 
with not as much consequence as sometimes we have. And, and that is difficult because as keepers, we really treasure the relationships we have with animals, but it shouldn't be the dominant factor in those animals' lives, if, particularly if they're from a social group, like chimps or gorillas or bonobos or you know other social monkeys or herds of antelope their main relationships should be with their conspecifics not with us so anyway that's just a philosophy i've i've tried to share with my colleagues over the years yes yeah, so what I hear you say is at the when you were starting to write that out and really, you know, obviously, again, kind of looking for something that wasn't existent at the moment. And then how can we articulate how we want to care for animals? You know, what's what do we wish for them uh, welfare wise for their well-being? And really, you know, the, I hear you say agency. So really having the animals really having choices and control over their lives, over yeah. the environment, you know, the environments being, you know, managed in a way that they can make the choices they want to make when they want to make it and being able to deal with uh, some of the negative stressors that they might encounter in a way that, you know, they can, they can still overcome them if you like. So, um, and that's, I think, uh, you know, it's even today, we are still trying to really move in that direction, right? Yeah, so there, there was always something I was very interested in achieving and, and never really um, was able to fulfill that. And that was, you know, when we do our breeding, we, we have goals for 90% of genetic diversity over a hundred years we should have those types of goals for behavior we we don't always know what's innate behavior and what's learned behavior whatever is learned behavior how do we allow animals to learn those behaviors who are their mentors are we allowing for those opportunities to occur and where we are not are we planning if those species ever used for reintroduction to the wild do we have any idea how we can reintroduce that knowledge and those behaviors back into those animals but but in particular what are the innate behaviors what are the learned behaviors and and can we quantify them in some way so that we know what we have to retain for for future release because when you look at release, prog release to the wild programs, we might have really good genetics, but if the behavior is really stuffed up because we mollycoddled the animals too much and we didn't give them any agency, then those programs aren't going to succeed. So we need measures to be able to measure behavior and work towards goals that will be useful by the time we come to release animals back to the wild, whether that be in a 50 years time or 60 years time or in a month. Yes, absolutely. And it brings to mind one of the papers I, I read already. I, it's almost two decades ago. Um, Rabin, he um, in 2003 published a paper about maintaining behavioral diversity. And, um, and the basis of his argument was similar in the sense like how do we and I think, you know, lots of people have built on that, really thinking about culture in animals, you know, different cultures. Also, you talked about great apes, but also others, like what are, you know, the social aspects. And we have plenty of examples of how, you know, the lack of role models were detrimental to the introduction of animals back into the wild or, you know, the knowledge, knowing certain behaviors and how to either protect yourself, flee from predators or actually catch prey and so on. Um, and, you know, lots of rehabilitation programs or reintroduction programs have been amended thinking along yeah. the lines that you just mentioned. So, yeah, yeah and it's, um, and, and I remember a, a great talk by uh, the late Graham Law also where, and that, you know, I think it was at the 999 Conference of Enrichment in Edinburgh, and he got quite a bit of a stir because 
he was also talking about this and how it also means, and you mentioned that earlier, that sometimes, you know, animals ex experience some negative stresses in their environment, but then learn how to, you know, behave either from each other or from the environment, um, you know, so, but really thinking through that and, and sometimes I agree, we, we obviously want to make sure animals have good well-being most of the time, but it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be challenged physically or cognitively. And how do we then think about, you know, those behaviors across time? So yeah, I'm very yeah. glad you brought that up because it's relevant in, of course, reintroduction programs, but also in the animals that are um, in our, you know, facilities long-term and uh, perhaps they get never released, but still they could be very valuable for social yeah. cohesion and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, we talk a lot about resilience at the moment in human society with the pandemic that, you know, so many people find it difficult to adapt to, you know, suddenly a very negative environment that they need to cope with. And, and I think animals, we often forget that we maintain a lot of those species for a potential, the potential of release back to the wild should it ever be needed. And therefore, we really need to um, make sure that they're, they're behaviorally competent in order to cope with that in however many generations it may take that, that we need to call upon them to augment the wild or to reestablish um, their species in the wild. Yeah, so, yeah, that's always been a yeah. hobby horse. And I think the less we humans impact on them, and, and I too, I'm an old zookeeper. I love my relationship with the animals, but it is not about me. It's about them. And, and that is sometimes hard to understand that, you know, when we work the gorillas, for example, we asked the male, the dominant male for his cooperation to lead the group inside or outside. We didn't just, you know, tell the, the rest of the group because we might usurp his authority and we didn't want to do that. So we're very careful to respect the fact that he was the leader and we would ask him nicely whether he thought it now was the time to bring everybody inside for the night. Um, and I think it's that kind of respect for their authority, for their agency that we just always need to be aware of. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's really, and I think, you know, when we talk about, we obviously have whys of what we do in, in modern zoos and aquariums and other facilities today. And then one of the other questions really is the how and, you know, really looking into those specific details in like, is this a good moment, you know, that you with your group, you know, can decide to come in versus we need to, you know, you all to come in. And it's really yep. those sorts of hows that are going to make a difference. And, and also that, we, like you say, you know, we all love, I've worked as a zookeeper for many years and we love our relationship with the animals and, and that animals have a positive relationship towards people so that they are not to experience anxiety and fear right uh, and at the same time understanding like in when is that relationship appropriate and necessary meaningful and when is it um you know not actually uh, to the benefit of the animals uh, and that that's could right be, that yeah. could be that situation yeah yeah, when I was um, a young zookeeper, well, I wasn't that young. I was, I just told you I was a junior at 31 years yeah. of age. But there were a lot of old blokes. I was one of the first female zookeepers in Australia, really. Uh, there were very few of us. Um, and they would really always position themselves as the most dominant animal in whatever group they were working with. And... I guess I just always had a different approach, thinking that that would disrupt their social structure to the degree that I didn't want to disrupt it. I, I thought that was for a social animal, the relationships they have within their society is the most important thing. Um, and, and we'd need to preserve at all costs. So I always try to work 
around that. Um, but you know, you like you say, we need to come up with ideas on how to do that and share those. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I think today, with especially with positive reinforcement training and asking the animals uh, and really, you know, good behavior observations, people are very knowledge uh, to say, look at, okay, so when could it be? Uh, the moment or to be ready when the animals are actually asking us, uh, you know, like to go inside or to do things. And I think that is also a sort of shift that we have been seeing that people are letting go of that sort of control or perceived control that they think they need to have, because otherwise they couldn't manage the animals. And um, if I can ask you to do something, then why shouldn't the animal uh, ask something of me to do something right in the moment? Yeah, they that's right. To- yeah, so yeah. it's really lovely to continue those conversations and see how can we, because we talk a lot about choice and control and agency and, of course, resilience, uh, but how do we make that practical? So, yeah, let's continue thinking about how we can do that. And uh, you mentioned, you know, really working with, you know, the leadership and with the teams. So perhaps you can talk a little bit around uh, consultation with care staff and other facilities and uh, and working as a, as a leader yeah look that that's difficult I think being a leader is very difficult I, I don't think it ever came that naturally to me I'm bossy but there's a difference between being bossy and a leader and um to me, leadership is all about setting up the situation in such a way that the followers of your leadership can do the job to their satisfaction and, and you providing what it is that they want from a leader, which is they want to be able to trust you, they want you to make decisions that are for the greater good of the entire society, they want you to resolve conflict, um, make sure there are resources to do the job, etc. And um, it's not an easy task, I don't think. And I hope that people over the years have felt that, you know, I did a good job in some ways. Uh, not everyone is, is going to be happy always with the leadership <laughs> that you provide. Um, But I think it is a symbiotic relationship between leaders and followers. They need to work together to achieve the greater good that everyone wants to achieve. And that's probably the the most difficult thing in that. Yes. And I think, you know, you mentioned really lots of qualities that are important that you, and I love how you like, I'm bossy and doesn't necessarily make you a good leader, but, and, and I think, you know, most of us, like any other skill you mentioned, right? You went to veterinary um, nurse degrees and through like bird license and all the other things, we have to learn lots of skills. And of course, becoming a good leader is one of them. And, um, and you know, a lot of the qualities that you mentioned also have again to do with this sort of agency and, and letting people decide how to best work with the animals and get the things done that they know need to get done. Uh, but, you know, having them uh, be lots more empowered in that way. So, uh, yeah, so thanks for sharing those. Those are really, really important aspects. And, uh, and it's really great to hear, you know, zoos today moving towards like teams deciding how they run their day. You know, they know what they need to do for the animals, but they get to decide how they want to, how they clean, obviously, according to, you know, protocols and so on. But they are the managers, if you like, of of their day. And um, yeah, those, of course, have to do with trust, trusting that that will all get done. Absolutely. Yep. Thanks for sharing those. And so... You know, you talked about the animal welfare policy. Can you also talk about the animal welfare strategy and the development of that? Yeah, so um, I wrote a document and yet again with with lots of consultation and not just with zookeepers, but also with the commercial side of our organisation to get everyone to understand what that meant. Uh, and then try to articulate that in a number of points, like 
you know, in terms of animal health, we will always do X, Y, Z. We will have veterinarians on staff. Any keeper can ring the vets and get um, advice or, or a consult. So there were very precise actions for each one of the components of that strategy. And I think you need to be able to articulate what animal welfare is. Um, every staff member should be able to say good animal welfare is having happy animals. Good animal welfare is um, making sure the physical and mental health of the animal is taken in consideration on every day with everything we do. I would like to think that every person who works in the zoo, and I don't care what kind of job they have, they should be able to say what is good animal welfare and have an answer to that. And it doesn't have to be the exact same answer, but they need to be able to articulate something in the realm of all the things that are, that are included in good animal welfare. Yes, absolutely. And it's really about, um, you know, we might have different ways of describing it, but like you say, are we ultimately, you know, singing the same tune, the same song? Uh, or have we, are we having, you know, really different um, views or even looking through different ethical lenses? And then how do we, you know, come together into what do we as an organization stand for when it comes to caring for the animals and the well-being that they should have? So absolutely so important if you are listening and you don't have an animal welfare strategy, including, of course, the processes and tactics for your facility, it's highly recommendable uh, to spend time on developing that and really rolling that out across all the various domains to which animal welfare, of course, pertains. And you've been very prolific with, you know, publications and uh, your, your rehab book. So could you talk a little bit about your earlier publications, like the Care of Australian Wildlife or Old Wildlife? Yeah, so I wrote one, I think that came out in 1990, about um, care of Australian wildlife. So that was really for the Australian members of the public to be able to respond to any animal, native animal in need that they might come across. Um, an injured bird, a, a ringtailed possum on the ground or whatever it was. Um, with some basic care for the, you know, how to, how to pick it up so you wouldn't hurt the animal or yourself, what to feed it until you could get it to veterinary care, what first aid if needed, what kind of housing could you give it for on a temporary basis. Um, then I wrote another one on oiled wildlife. Um, I became involved in an oil spill um, and it was an inland lake that was a, a cooling lake for a few for um, an electricity commission power station. So, and there was, had been a diesel spill in that. So, they rang the zoo and said, "So we've got all these birds. What do we do?" So we were starting to give them advice over the phone, and after half a day they said oh can you can you guys please come over so one of the vets Larry and I went over there and that made me realize that there was really a need for a publication um, so I wrote that uh, and that's a very detailed guide on what to do during an oil spill so anything from how do you look after the birds? How do you wash them? How do you house them? What do you feed them? How do you deal with the PR? What kind of post-mortem facilities do you need to have? Um, and also then developed workshops that we conducted right around Australia uh, on how to deal with oil spills and, and the animals in your care during that time. And then attended a number of oil spills um, with like thousands of birds, penguins, whatever, lots of things. And then the government asked me to rewrite that, um, to, to do an update. And I think that was in the early 2000s. Um, so, yeah, that was it, it's sort of an almost uh, getting it off your chest when you know stuff and you want other people to know that stuff. It's really satisfying to write it down. 
Um, and then um, after I stopped full-time work at the zoo, I wrote some other books because I enjoy writing and I enjoy sharing the stuff I've learned about animals and my love of wild animals um, with other people. So that's been good fun. Yeah, and it's wonderful because I think these, you know, the books on wildlife rehab and caring or what to do in an oil spill, you know, we know when there's oil spills, there's often a lot of people who want to volunteer and help. And so that, of course, can help them prepare for jobs like that. But also, what can you do, you know, so empowering the members of the public because, you know, zoo, good zoos, aquariums and other facilities today in their education programs, a lot of it is, and the conservation programs is a lot of it empowering other people to be actors uh, for, you know, the greater good for the planet, for other animals, right? Whether it's your urban uh, animals that could be injured or, you know, how can you protect and, uh, and promote, you know, good um, well-being and for the planet and other animals. So those books also contribute to that, to giving people uh, information and knowledge so it's really great to to you know write everything down and share it that's wonderful look I, I like it because um, if people have an interaction with wildlife if they have some knowledge it can be a positive experience for them they know they've done some good and that feels good um, so yeah giving the, giving people the ability to have a positive impact on native animals uh, that they might encounter in the garden is just great. So I've really enjoyed doing that. Absolutely, yeah. And especially, you know, we just, before we started the podcast, we talked about how lovely it is to travel and see our friends and family and go to conferences and connect with people. And at the same time, you know, going to faraway places and doing things also makes us kind of uncomfortable because of our carbon footprint and, um, and, and, you know, a lot of times when we are at home, it's the animals or the environment around you and the people with who you can share it, that you can have most influence on uh, if it's about your bubble of influence, right? So uh, yeah, those books can uh, be another nugget in how people can be actors. Uh, yeah, for animals and, and nature, and of course, for themselves. So Let's talk a little bit about your, your latest books. Um, yeah, Wild Leadership, Wild Fathers. Tell us more about books in the pipeline. Yeah, so those two um, are really a zoologist, an old zookeeper's view of human behaviour seen through the lens of animal behaviour. So that's also been really enjoyable writing. So the Wild Leadership one, I wrote, the, I think it came out about, two years ago, and I wrote that because when I looked at the world, you know, there's, there's a climate crisis, <laughs> animals are disappearing off the planet, and when I looked at the leaders who were doing anything about it, I, I couldn't see very many. And um, so I, I was very interested in leadership as a, you know, the, the, the thing that it is. And looked, and I would mumble to myself, a bloody chimp could do a better job. So I wanted to write a book that talked about what the essence of leadership is, how I've observed that in the animals that I've worked with, cared for, and, and loved. And there are commonalities in the kinds of leadership that feels good to the animals that receive it. Because that's really important too, that the animals that under a certain, are under a certain type of leadership are able to live happy, productive lives. So um, that became a book where I talked about the leadership of, you know, authoritarianism with gorillas as an example, or the, the laissez-faire leader, which is the lion, but the followers, you know, the lionesses have a pretty good life. They've got autonomy, they can make decisions and they rear their young and great companion of the other females of their of their pride. Um, bonobos as the egalitarian leader, chimpanzees as the political leader, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, yeah, that's 
done very well. It's been translated in German, into German and into French, and it's had a, a great response. I get requests for interviews from all over the world for that one. So that's been really exciting because I think around the world, people have seen maybe leadership can be done in different ways where, you know, it actually serves us the followers the leader should work for the people they they lead not the other way around and i think that is not really well understood by leaders um and then the one i've just written more recently that came out in may 2021 so it was a bit of a pandemic book I wanted to look at fatherhood and perhaps it's written from a female perspective, what we expect from fathers, what we see as good fathers. Why is fatherhood a big deal in birds where 95% of males hang around to help breed young, whereas in mammals it's like 5% of mammal males will help breed the offspring. What are the differences than when a male does hang around? What's the benefit of having uh, paternal care, what does the paternal care bring to the offspring, and um, how you can avoid being a parent. Like when you work in zoos, you know that if your uncles, aunties, brothers, sisters do a lot of reproducing, you don't have to bother. You know, your genes are well represented into the next generation. So there's a little bit of advice about that too. Wonderful, wonderful. We'll definitely put links to the books with this podcast so if you want to check out you know the books including wild leadership and wild fathers are you writing anything at the moment or coming something coming out soon yeah i i am it's not coming out soon but i'm writing at the moment about the power of female animals um female animals in male dominated societies have power we all know that um, they are a force to be reckoned with when they bond together. And I'm just gathering all my stories and anecdotes and doing the research to put that book together on the power of female animals. Wonderful. And comparing it with humans, of course. Yes, yes. Okay, so we'll definitely have to um, keep an eye out on that. I'll look forward to reading that one as well. You uh, are not only, you know, writing, but you also continue your work. Like you said, you're not really retired. So uh, you work as a consultant and perhaps you can talk a little bit to that. What do you consult on? Look, I was until the pandemic. So there's not an awful lot. I've done some on online stuff. I've been a keynote speaker at various leadership conferences because of the leadership book. Um, but that's all been via Zoom. Um, but still, it's, it's uh, consulting, I suppose. I've given um, some workshops on leadership um, via Zoom, but it's all been a little bit at a distance at the moment. Before the pandemic, I was helping zoos um, if they requested my help, obviously, uh, to look at their policies or... Um, look at some of their animal welfare strategies or whatever it was that um, they wanted me to come over and consult on. And that was a lot of fun, but maybe after the pandemic, um, that's something I can engage in again. Yes, and, and I'm sure that, you know, now that we can't travel necessarily as much, however, you have opportunities to reach all kinds of people that might not have even or the budget or the possibility to fly you out, but they can actually hire you online. Um, and so you probably, you know, have opportunities to, you know, engage in so many more countries and in so many in so many more ways. So, um, yeah, that's wonderful. And hopefully you can um, also connect in person again sometime soon. Yeah, yeah all, I think we all look forward to that, don't we? <laughs> We do. Look, I think we're all getting a lot more used to talking to each other online. So, um, yeah, and it's it, it sure beats not talking to each other. So I'm, I'm happy to do that whenever the opportunity arises. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, there is some recent research because, of course, a lot of research has been done on the various impacts of COVID that, 
you know, when you talk, um, talking through WhatsApp or Zoom with the video on um, is, you know, very, very good for us, especially rather than not seeing each other. So the seeing part is very important, uh, hence for often having cameras on or, you know, calling people. Um, so at least, you know, we should, uh, we can do that. And that's, that's just wonderful until we can uh, that's right. embrace <laughs> people. Well, it's been them. lovely to see you, Sabrina. Yes, yes, same here, absolutely, even though we're very, very far away. So thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. We always also, like we start, you know, we heard the story of, of Peter, you German shepherd. Um, we always love to conclude on perhaps like a favorite personal story related to animals. So perhaps you can share a final story with us before we conclude the podcast. Okay, well, one that really made an impression on me, it was uh, early morning in Taronga Zoo in Sydney, lovely spring morning. The zoo had just opened and there was a young mother with a baby in a pram that had just made it to the first viewing window of the gorillas when I walked past. And there was a mother gorilla in there with a baby gorilla that was about the same age as the baby in her pram. It was a toddler. And those toddlers stood on either side of the glass and mimicked each other with hand movements across the glass. And the mothers connected at that moment and the babies connected. And it was one of the most touching things I ever saw because, you know, our humanity and, and, and their gorilla-ness just didn't matter. I mean, we were the same. There were two mothers with their two toddlers who were playing together really nicely and, and making a real connection. And that was one of the most touching things I've, I've ever seen in the zoo in terms of our visitors making a real heartfelt connection uh, with an animal. So yeah, that's one I'll, I'll remember for sure. Yes, I can, I can imagine, like we talked about human animal interactions and connections and, and those are some, yeah, very, very special stories. So thank you so much for sharing and for coming on to this podcast and already looking forward to your next book. Thanks so much, Erna. Absolute pleasure, Sabrina. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. So the end of another wonderful podcast. So make sure to check out the links and, um, you know, dive into the books if you feel inspired. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself so you can be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And of course, supporting you in other goals such as conservation, education and research. And the Practical Animal Welfare Science platform is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being, science and practice, where you can get continued personal education, learning, sharing, tools and resources that you need or want to use so you and your animals can flourish. If you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a course member today.